MSW Media. Now that the national conventions are over, the race for the presidency is in the final stretch. How can Trump be defeated? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name's Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, the host of the Patty Vasquez Show, who joins us regularly on this podcast. But before I bring in Patty, I want to thank our patrons who brought us this episode, with special thanks to Michelle Dew, Andrew Donnelly, James Frohmeyer, Jay Gelhausen, Jamie and Izzy Gordon, Patrick, Steve Hungsberg, Shana Wachinski, and an anonymous patron. You too can become a patron on our website, ontopicpodcast.com. Just click the support link at the top of the page. So, Patty, you know, it is... This has definitely been an interesting time uh, to be uh, planning a podcast around the news. It, the news is just driving a mile a minute lately uh, between people being murdered on the street, uh, you know, in part due to the color of their skin. Um, we have hurricanes coming, but no, probably no bigger hurricane than the hurricane of lies coming from the Republican convention this week. Yeah, it is uh, really, it feels apocalyptic at this point. Um, but, and I think that for me, let's just say today, I feel intensely this uh, animosity that people have uh, because if you look at Facebook, if you look at social media, it is, the intensity is definitely getting worse. Um, and and it, it, there's more uncertainty than I have felt in the last few weeks. You know, when Trump announced his candidacy first in July of 2015, I had told my listeners when I was back at the radio station, be very careful because this could be the next president of the United States. And some people thought that I was crazy. But what I was responding to was kind of the same atmosphere that we're having now, not necessarily the uh, catastrophic levels to which we are at, but the vitriol that was expressed towards Democrats. Uh, I, I think that the conservatives are masterful at manipulation and propaganda and uh, really feeding on people's fears. And this atmosphere is ripe for it. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, they're basically always looking for some sort of, uh, it seems like they're looking for some sort of boogeyman um, to hold up whether, you know, it's illegal immigrants and now it's it's African-Americans. You know, I will say that watching the Republican convention this week, it's almost as if it's an alternate universe. I mean, it's something like out of the pages of 1984, the famous George Orwell novel, where, you know, you're I'm hearing these people talking about Donald Trump, you know, as if the coronavirus doesn't exist, as if we have this booming economy as, as opposed to economy where so many millions of people are unemployed. Uh, people talking about how 
that, you know, there's no racism and um, this sort right. of thing. I mean, it's u- unbelievable. And at the same time, we have a lot of, you know, black people in this country who are understandably outraged because, uh, you know, you have some uh, a man who's shot seven times in the back and there's a debate about whether that's acceptable or not. And then you have this kid going up with an assault rifle and gunning people down in the street um, and and some people on the right actually lionizing that that kid. Well, and it's interesting because if you see the chief of police from Kenosha talking about it, it, did you see that press conference he had where essentially said if those people had not been out after curfew, they wouldn't be dead? And not that a 17-year-old crossed state lines illegally with a firearm to, uh, I, you know, to stand with police because he idolized this ideation. And that's something that, we, you know, we haven't talked too much about is this sort of uh, us against them when it comes to law enforcement. My entire life, I have grown up with uh, people who whose parents were in law enforcement and now my friends are police officers and firefighters. And, and I struggle with it because they're my friends, they're my family, and I've never felt so uh, vulnerable to the, the attacks uh, and this sort of isolationism that's uh, that's happening right now, us against them, is really uh, intensified. Hmm. But when somebody, when they say, when I heard them say, somebody on Monday, uh, I, I'm only getting snippets of the convention, but someone said that racism doesn't exist. I, I almost feel as though people want to dismiss it because then they don't have to carry any responsibility of making life better for people who are asking for help. And that's just unconscionable to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I have to say it's definitely an alternative version of reality. And um, I really think that, and, you know, I hope we're able to explore with our guests a little bit about how this didn't just develop out of nowhere. I think that Donald Trump is a culmination of developments that have occurred over many years. Um, but I have to say, I mean, it is it's it's such an enormous topic. This was something we were plan you know, we've been sort of had in the works for a little while trying to cover sort of what what is happening here and how it can be combated because I think you know, I get questions all the time from people asking me, Who do you think is gonna win the election? You know, how what do you think is gonna happen? What do you think the Democrats should do? I have to say I'm not a political strategist or expert. Uh, I don't hold myself out to be. Uh, I I often have predicted elections incorrectly, including the last one. I would have never predicted that Trump would have won. But I do think that part of the explanation has to be racism, sexism, some of these things that um, are, you know, if they're if they're not on the surface, they're they're beneath the surface uh, in American uh, society, and I will say you you are definitely starting to see uh, some reaction. I, I noticed that there was polling, for example, that showed that uh, view, the view of the Black Lives Matter movement in Wisconsin has dropped twenty points. Uh, and you know, I think that a lot of the rhetoric uh, from the right has has played a part in that. Yeah, I was talking to somebody today about getting out the vote and really having the vulnerability now in Wisconsin when it comes to support for Biden. And it's troubling, you know, so we are uh, trying to figure out ways in which to reach out to voters there. Uh, But I don't know how, you know, when you have folks that have lived in a quiet community and and, in areas of Wisconsin that have been peaceful to see streets where I, I have a friend that wrote a piece today about how it looks like, you know, this war zone. Um, it's going to have an impact. 
without a doubt. Well, before we bring in our guests and, and, and transition to that, I do want to take a moment, and I hope everyone indulges us. This is the two-year anniversary of the launch of our podcast, and you know it has been quite a ride. I, we spent a lot of time uh, early on in particular focused, obviously, on the uh, investigation of uh, Trump and his associates, um, and things have really evolved since then. And this has really been a labor of love, I think, for all of us. It's not a, at all a money-making venture. It's probably it's it's more a money losing venture, but it's it's something that um, I, I I really enjoy doing because I feel like the conversation that it fosters something I learn from, and I've really enjoyed getting to know all of you, not only from comments and questions uh, on Twitter and Facebook and elsewhere, but also from our patron uh, Facebook group and from the patron newsletter and other ways in which patrons have also reached out. And I think that uh, just the gratitude uh, that we have from so many people that follow us uh, demonstrates how much people want to know that they're not the only ones who are feeling as though things are out of control. Right. That's, yeah. that's part of what um, I think emboldens us, you know, keeps us going. And thank you so much for inviting me along on this ride. I remember when you reached out to me and said, hey, can you grab a cup of coffee? And uh, and you and you told me what your plans were. I, I'm grateful and honored that you asked me to uh, join you on this adventure. Well, I am I'm grateful you said yes. You are without a doubt my first choice of person to do this with. And I have to say that. You know, it's something I've learned from. I've learned from you. I've learned from our listeners. I've learned from our guests. And that's, you know, for me, this is really about understanding in more depth sort of what's going on in our world. I learn as much as I think our listeners do sometimes from our guests. And more than most podcasts, I think I let our guests do most of the talking because I just find what they have to say more, you know, more interesting. I want to learn from them. And I, I think I've also, you know, learned, uh, you know, quite a bit from you as well, Patty. Thank you. Me too. I've learned lots. I, I wish I could take uh, the LSATs now and go to law school. <laughs> 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 well, um, you know, I will say that, you know, that you never know. That may be in the cards someday. You certainly could do it if that's what you put your mind to. But I, I hope you're... Well, I've already looked at, Renato, my last shot at taking it this year is uh, sometime in October. I don't know if I have enough time to uh, wow. <laughs> take all the practice tests. Well, you will ace it if that, uh, if that does uh, come in your future. All right, well, let's talk about our guest and bring him in. Uh, our guest this week is Paul Begala, uh, and it is a treat uh, for me to have him uh, on the uh, podcast because he's someone that I have listened to as a political analyst and commentator for much of my life. Uh, he's probably best known as the chief strategist for the 1992 Clinton-Gore campaign. Uh, and at the time, that was an absolutely astounding victory after the Republicans had held the presidency for 12 years. Uh, and since that time, you know, he has been a political analyst and commentator. Uh, he is also uh, the author of You're Fired, the uh, perf the perfect guide to beating Donald Trump. So we'll, we'll talk to him a little bit about that, but, but a lot about his views on this race, what the Democrats need to do to beat uh, Trump, and so on. So now let's bring in Paul Begala. Welcome to the podcast, Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. Renato, thank you so much. So I've got to tell you, Paul, you know, for me, uh, I, I'm in my 40s. For somebody my age, the election that you are best known for being involved with, the Clinton-Gore race in 1992, was such a seminal election. And at the time, it seemed like uh, an unbelievable victory, given that the Republicans had held the White House for 12 years. 
It seems, I have to say, like a lifetime ago at this point, politics has changed so much, um, you know, since that time in the last 18 years. I wonder, what are the things that to you are are the most different now? And then what, what do you think is ultimately the same? Wow. Well, it's a great point. It has changed radically in the last 28 years. Um, first off, that was the last time we fired an incumbent president. It doesn't happen very often. So what Joe Biden is trying to do is very difficult. It's only happened four times in the last century. And uh, Joe's going to try to make it a fifth, but he's got his work cut out for him. The politics was so fundamentally different. Get this. Almost nine out of 10 voters in that 1992 election were white. It's 87%. 87% white electorate. Today, this 2006, 2020 election, likely to be about 67, 69, something like that. Below 70 so we are much more richly diverse. I think that's a very good thing. I think it makes us a better country, stronger and smarter and younger and more, more able to compete. But so that's the, the biggest thing is that the if you're running in, in a, a city, state, a district or country that's 87 percent white, that's a very different electorate than the one that Joe Biden is running in now. Um, and it reflected in the states when we were strategizing for Bill Clinton. Our top target was California, which had gone Republican nine out of the previous 10 presidential elections. California was most reliably Republican big state in the union, and we wanted to crack that. And I have to say, since then, it's been a pivot point. Uh, since then, the Democrats have won every single election in California uh, for president and likely to continue. So we've just changed radically. And uh, again, that's a function, I think, of the two things driving our politics, greater diversity and changing attitudes among uh, white people. Uh, and and uh, white folks have gone two ways. Uh, high school educated whites, like the guys I grew up with in Missouri City, Texas, they used to be all Democrats. Now they're all Republicans. There's been an absolute hemorrhage among Democrats with those voters. And I think that's a shame. But Newton's third law of motion still applies. For a reaction, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So all the things that Donald Trump has done to excite High school educated white men have alienated college educated white women. So you, you've really flipped uh, the, the, the coalitions of the two parties in a pretty radical way. Yeah. It, you know, I, one thing I, I'm interested in is understanding the extent to which Trump is uh, part of an evolution in mm -hmm. American politics versus a departure. In other words, there are certain things about Trump that – I think many regard as just – I mean he's obviously um, so outside of the American tradition in a number of ways. But of course we can see the seeds in so many things that he's done in the past in American history. I wonder the extent to which you think that Trump is a departure or more of an evolution. Well, I think it's like they say about bankruptcy, right? It happens slowly, slowly, slowly and then all of a sudden. Um, uh, Julian Zelizer at Princeton has written a, a terrific book that traces the roots of all this to Newt Gingrich, who came thundering into uh, Congress in the uh, late 80s and uh, really broke all the norms then and was rewarded, wound up being the Speaker of the House, took back the House for the Republicans for the first time in four decades. So that kind of uh, slash and burn politics was rewarded at the time. Uh, and it, there is, a, uh, I think, a through line from Newt to Trump. And yet Trump is so radically different that, that the last Republican nominees, John McCain, of course, couldn't stand him. Uh, Mitt Romney has been the most uh, outspoken Republican in the Senate. 
uh, President Bush has said he's not going to vote for him. So in that sense, he's a very radical departure, too. You can see the roots of this going all the way back, even before Newt, all the way to Nixon and the Southern strategy where he was dog whistling racist things to working class whites. Um, but but Trump really is also a radical departure from anything the Republicans have put on the field before. And I think that's a tragedy to see a great party uh, self-destruct. Yeah, I have to say, you know, between the Republican platform no longer existing, or at least they just they haven't put in a new platform this time around, to a, you know watching the Republican convention and seeing it essentially be an infomercial about Trump the man more than about any traditional Republican policies or proposals, you know, I've gotten the sense that it, the, the party has become much more about Trump and Trumpism than about anything that traditionally has been considered conservatism. I, I wonder or you know, whether any of that will survive Trump. I don't know what to make of it. Oh, I think Trumpism will survive Trump. Uh, I, I want Biden to win by as much as possible to snuff it out. I'd love to go back to the debates we had in the past, serious debates between Democrats and Republicans about levels of taxation, uh, about whether we should have the Affordable Care Act, uh, about national security issues. But we can't seem to even get to those because Trump has imposed this completely different style of politics, uh, which is uh, it begins, I have to say, with grievance. And that grievance seems to be rooted in race, um, hating the other, hating the immigrants, hating the Muslims. Hating the African Americans, um, hating uh, gay and, and transgender Americans. Um, if Trump is trounced, if Joe wins big, I think that takes a lot of steam out of Trumpism. But uh, that that argument will persist. People will still, uh, I think, once he's uh, retired, go after that uh, grievance-based far-right uh, Trump cult. Yeah, it seems like some of the roots of that you could see that some of that, for example, in the choice of Sarah Palin as a running mate, and you right. know, in that in that race, you had Joe the plumber. That whole, that whole, there was a bit of that strain in the two thousand and eight race, um, but it, it's definitely been on steroids, and perhaps there's like a dam that broke. Uh, and and it, I think, you know, there's that that um, analysis from I think it was Evan Jones maybe on on election night saying that. This is in many ways a reaction to the election of Barack Obama. I think uh, that that may very well explain that. It may. It may. Um, you know, after uh, the the Voting Rights Act, Civil Rights Act, the Public Accommodations Act, all those great, great progressive uh, uh, successes of the 60s under mostly LBJ, begun under JFK. Uh, after that, Democrats lost five out of the next six presidential elections. I'm not saying it was only because of that. But Johnson, uh, by the way, who's celebrating his birthday this week, uh, he was born uh, uh, on August 27, 1908. Johnson, when he signed the Civil Rights Act, put his head in his hands, and he had this brilliant young aide named Bill Moyers. And he looked up at Moyers. Moyers was from Commerce, Texas. And he looked up and said, hey, Moyers, so this is the greatest moment of your presidency. Why are you so sad? And he looked up and said, Moyers, I just gave the South to the Republicans for a generation. And he understated it. He gave the South to the Republicans for two generations. But things are changing. They are. And, and I, I think Van makes a good point that some of the election of Trump was a backlash uh, uh, against uh, Obama. But I, I think that the, a coalition Obama put together 
going all the way back, as I say, to the first post-Cold War presidency of Bill Clinton, that their coalition is reassembling itself and much larger, in fact, than even Obama's because of this growth that uh, Pelosi in the midterms and now Biden in this year are, are having among college-educated white folks, particularly women. You know, people just use shorthand suburban women, but it's mostly white women who've gone to college. Uh, and so, and, a, and a, a great number of white men. I'm a white man who went to college. I like Joe. So there's a few of us out there. <laughs> um, you know, I I have to say one thing that I find really interesting. I was looking a little bit at the uh, at the book you recently wrote. You really are focused, I think, on voters and what what it is that voters want. How is it that what if you were the strategist for this campaign? How would you go about figuring out? who the coalition of voters are and what they care about. What, what would be what would be the first step? Well, every party has to start with its base. The Democratic base is the rising American electorate. That's why over time, Democrats are more confident and more in favor of democracy. Seriously, it's why Democrats would never support restrictions on the right to vote, because they believe if everybody votes, they win, uh, because they believe they're the majority party in their bones. The rising American electorate is young people, people of color, unmarried women, and they're religiously unaffiliated or secular or atheist. Those four groups compose almost two thirds of all the voting eligible population, but they're underregistered and they're under uh, represented on election day. They participate at much lower numbers. Uh, so that's the first thing is you gotta get folks organized, registered and mobilized. Uh, that's a huge lift for the Democrats. That's, that's where you have to start. And that's not the end, though. There's this pointless, stupid debate in the Democratic Party. Well, should we fire up our base or should we reach out to swing voters? The answer is yes. Both. If you abandon your base, if you take your base for granted, you're you're dead. You're no longer worthy of their votes. So you have to tend to that. And you have to tend to it all the time, not just in the election year. And then when you get closer to the election, like now, you've got to also reach out to, uh, in this case, suburban voters. I argue in the book, that Democrats can cut the margin in rural America by quite a bit because Trump has been hell on farmers. So you do that without abandoning your base or betraying them. I'm not saying you go to rural America and say, oh, yeah, I've switched on gay rights or gun safety. But you find web issues that stitch them together because the truth is the most idealistic uh, young voter in, in the biggest city has more in common with an older voter in rural America than she might think, like health care prescription drugs, jobs, not dying from a, a plague. Uh, so Democrats need to find these web issues to counter the Republicans' wedge issues. You know, off of that uh, idea, because I'm sure you've read the book Strangers in Their Own Land, and the idea of, you know, this sort of, uh, you know, rural America that we can't understand. You know, we, many of us are like, well, how do they keep voting against their own interests? You know, and, and of course, a lot of those areas are in swing states. And one of our listeners asks, if you happen to know, does Biden have staff on the ground? And if not, won't the same thing happen to Hillary uh, when she ignored crucial face-to-face -face contact uh, occur with Biden's campaign? Yeah, Patty, that's a great point. The problem is you can't safely encounter voters safe to safe, face to face uh, during this pandemic. And that's really uh, a problem for both campaigns. It's an enormous challenge for both of them. Uh, I'm not I'm a, I'm an analyst, not a, a, a participant any longer. So I don't know for a fact, but I'm quite sure that Biden's got people in all of these key areas. Um, the thing is now most of the outreach has to be virtual. But we we do have to Democrats uh, have to reach out to them 
And it begins with listening. You know, I, I do think um, there has been a strain of elitism in the Democratic Party. Uh, Joe Biden is our first nominee who didn't go to uh, an Ivy League school since 1968. <laughs> so thank God we've got a Delaware blue hen. By the way, his running mate, also a state school gal, Kamala Harris, University of California. So I, I'm, I'm a University of Texas guy. I like state schools. I, I admire the Ivy League, and I, I've been completely impressed with people who go there. But I just think it's a wonderful thing <laughs> that we have two state school kids running in the Democratic Party this time, uh, because I think that there's there's a greater, perhaps, uh, uh, connectedness, cultural affinity. You know, with, Joe is from Scranton originally, and I think he's probably got the ability to connect better perhaps, than some of the more elite uh, people in our party. One thing I uh, uh, I wonder is, is what is it, you know, a lot of our, li- a lot of our listeners are people who are high information folks. They are watching cable news. They are on Twitter and so forth. They listen to podcasts like this one. What is the, what do they need to understand about more typical voters who are lower information and how they consume information and, and process what you know their their decision to vote that's a great point renato this is going to freak out your audience because they are very high information the people that that the two campaigns are trying to reach at the end of this race spend on average there's a study that just came back on this four minutes a week thinking about or reading or watching or listening to political content four minutes a week i got that from jim messina president obama's campaign manager for his re-election uh messina i can't remember where he got it but he's a brilliant guy and he says you got to keep in mind, Begala, you're, we're trying to reach people who only spend four minutes a week thinking about politics, as opposed to many of us who you know, are overdosing on Twitter or, or staying up all night watching CNN. So that means you kind of have to sneak the goods through customs. Trump is pretty good at that because he's got performance skill. He says outrageous things and that penetrates. Um, I think for the Democrats, rather than say racist or sexist or homophobic things, <laughs> far better strategy is to talk about their lives. It, it's why I look, I can't stand Trump, but I think he's a person of this, the lowest character. But I don't think there's many, very many voters sitting out there, undecided voters saying, you know, I wish I could hear a little more about Donald Trump. You know, I think instead you go to them and you say, your health care is at risk. This guy is in court. Not, not Donald Trump's a pig. He allegedly paid off a porn star. What if we said to them instead, he's in court right now trying to take away your right to health care if you have a pre-existing condition? Did you know that? They say, no, I heard about the porn star. <laughs> you say, did you know that in his budget, he has $2 trillion of cuts in Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security? They say, well, no, no, I just heard about his Twitter war with Chrissy Teigen. You know, we, we need to make it about voters' lives, not Trump's, because people got a belly full of Trump. There are very few people out there who kind of want to know a little more about Trump. And I think what Democrats need to do is talk about voters' lives and how Trump's presidency has failed them in their life. Um, but it's always the voters, never the politicians. You know, I, I think that was very, it's very much a central point in your book. And I wonder, I, I, or I think I, it seems to me that that was a potential problem with the 2016 election and the 2016 campaign for Hillary Clinton. Especially by me. You know, I, 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 I was part of the super PAC whose job it was to run negative ads about Donald Trump. What a pleasure. That's a joy. That's shooting fish in a barrel. But you know, I took my eyes off the prize. And I say this in the book. It's the very first chapter, as you know, Renato. It's called Mea Culpa. 
Uh, and I failed to connect up their lives, voters' lives, with this election. I was so distracted by uh, Trump saying vicious things about John McCain, say insulting POWs, insulting the physical disability of Serge Kovaleski, a journalist, um, the, the hateful things he said about immigrants, about Muslims, about women. But I didn't then connect that up. I didn't make it about the voters' lives. I didn't sufficiently say, if this guy gets in and you're a retiree in Pennsylvania, you could lose your Social Security. If you're an office worker in Michigan, you could lose your uh, prescription drugs. If you're a farmer in Wisconsin, you could lose your ability to sell your crops. I didn't do that. And this is that's why I wrote the book, is that we have to learn from our own mistakes, my mistakes, uh, and Yes, put Trump on trial, but put Trump on trial for what he has done and failed to do. Coronavirus makes that essential. It actually is an existential election. Uh, uh, Stacey Abrams of Georgia has said this. Vote as if your life depends on it because it does. And I think she's right. So one of the I think the challenges that we face now, Paul, is that we live almost in a post-truth world. And you know, when I watch the Republican convention this week, I see a version of reality that does not correspond to what my very informed uh, self sees. Uh, and I will say that when I speak to relatives of mine, I've, I grew up in a very blue collar, um, uh, underprivileged uh, family who very much supports Donald Trump. And when I talk to his family members, their version of facts and reality do not correspond to what I have learned and seen in the world. How do you campaign in this in, in an environment in which uh, the the opposition does not uh, feel constrained at all by truth? And as you point out, voters get so little are, are so disengaged from politics that it's hard for them to discern between truth and fiction. It's a great point. It's a great point. And this is the first thing an autocrat wannabe does is he wages war on truth. The very first act as president that Trump had was to lie about the size of his crowd at his inaugural and to send his press secretary out. You know, I knew Sean Spicer. He was a you know Republican guy knocking around campaigns. Good guy. He went out and lied his rear end off on the very first day. I think, I know, that's because the first thing that this guy wants to do is disconnect his followers from objective truth, from the reality. Um, and he's done that ever since. What we do is I think we, again, talk about people's lives. I think coronavirus has interrupted that because you can't hide 178,000 deaths. It'll be 200,000 by election day. You can't hide 50 million people going on unemployment. You can't hide 10 million people losing their health care benefits. And so his tricks haven't worked. Uh, during coronavirus. It's why he's in such desperate shape for the election, because reality finally has caught up with him. And there's simply no way to lie about uh, uh, people dying and people getting sick. He's doing it. He's lying anyway. He's apparently cut back on testing, so we won't know how many people are sick. But we do know. We know when we talk to our friends and our neighbors and our relatives that this pandemic is claiming lives of people who did not need to die if Donald Trump had been doing a good job. Yeah, I will say watching the convention, there was this, this sense that they almost wanted to erase that the virus existed. I, you know, I listened, for example, to 
President Trump's uh, daughter-in-law speak, and she talked about all these jobs that were created, which, of course, have been lost since the pandemic. And there's really no discussion about the pandemic at all, very oblique references to it at times. It seemed like they were trying to live in an alternative reality that did not match uh, the pandemic. And I wonder... Um, whether that can hold up. I know that even some of my relatives who are in rural areas are starting to feel the impact of the virus. Oh, I think so. I think that's the problem for the, for the Trump team. Um, the, the, you can't fool all of the people all the time, as the founder of the Republican Party taught us. And they they it would be so much better. And I mean this, be better for the country, also be better strategy. The guy would get his arms around this thing if he would have it's a very simple formula that the experts tell us. We need to test, and then we need to trace, then we need to isolate, then we need to treat. If we do those four things, we can get our arms around it. My goodness, you know, Italy has done that. They had a far worse outbreak at first than we did. Uh, uh, Europe, uh, all across Europe, they, they've done it in South America, in Canada, all around the world. New Zealand, probably best of all. But it's a simple formula. If he had done that, if he'd gotten his arms around this god-awful plague, uh, he might be cruising to re-election right now. I don't know. But he just can't do it. I think President Obama had it right. If you're waiting for Donald Trump to change, he can't. If you're waiting for him to be competent, he can't. If you're waiting for him to be caring, he can't. The only way to, to get out of this is to get Trump out of the White House. You know, I want to go back to a couple of things because you said that, uh, you know, what we need to do is listen to what the voters need and connect some of these things as you're talking about, uh, you know, his uh, create creating this distrust amongst Americans, Americans, not just uh, of the other, you know, uh, whether it's racial um, or, you know, those who we consider to be a threat to us, but also in our institutions. Um, and he's and it seems as though fear, uh, you know, driving that forward has been much louder than some of the things that you're talking about, you know, letting because he was a, he hasn't done anything with health care, even though he promised it. It doesn't seem to matter to voters because I think that fear and hate seem so much more much more a powerful draw for some. Well, that's a good point. I mean, there's neurological science about this when we, and I write about this in the book. When we are fearful, our brain shuts down our thinking brain. Uh, the, the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala, the emotional center kicks in and takes over. Fear makes you stop thinking. Um, but you fight fear with facts. And, and uh, the, by the way, there's a great deal of fear on the other side. That is to say, if, if Mr. Trump with his spectacular incompetence and corruption and dishonesty remains, there's a very good chance that more of us will get sick than, than need to, than have to, than would otherwise. Um, so I, I think that Democrats have to fill that in um, with, frankly, their own fear to begin with, which is he's going to cut your Medicare. He's going to cut your Medicaid. He's going to cut your Social Security. He's trying to take away your right to health care if you have a pre-existing condition. Keep telling people that. And that is a different thing than saying he's a racist, misogynistic, homophobic, Islamophobe. He is. He is. I think he means all that. But I know he uses it to distract. Okay, I'm from the Gulf Coast of Texas. This god-awful storm, Laura, is barreling down on the Gulf Coast right now, more, more Louisiana than Texas. But this is a Category 4. This is about as bad as it ever gets. The top winds before landfall were 130 miles an hour. Well, when, when those things hit, you know, you, you have to act. You, you know, yeah, your fear is triggered, but you, you have to act. And I, I'm terribly worried that this guy's not up to it. 
I, I hope he is. I hope I know he's tried to cut FEMA. I know he's moved money out of FEMA into his stupid immigration policy. But, you know, people's lives are at stake. That's real. And there's always some number of people who won't evacuate. Oh, they're just making it up. It's all a myth. Well, God bless him. Most people, though, understand. And I think we have to make it that concrete in people's lives, as if a storm were barreling down, which it is in this case. And metaphorically, this this uh, this pandemic is. So I have people ask me all the time, Paul, you know, do you think Trump's going to win again? You know, what do you think is going to happen in this election? I get people asking me this question all the time, and I honestly beg off because I don't know the answer. Uh, I tell you, I, I I don't even try to. What what is your what is your take to? I, I get asked that question constantly, so I, I'm asking now an expert. What what would be your response to that question? Well, uh, first, keep in mind I've built my career by affecting elections, not predicting them. Right. <laughs> and if you go to a doctor and and uh, uh, she says you got six months to live and then you die six months to the day, is she a good doctor? I don't know. I kind of pay my doctor to keep my ass alive. <laughs> so I have a different mindset. That said, I'm now in the commentariat. I'm supposed to be able to predict. I don't know that my predictive capacity is any better than anybody else's. Um, I do, though, I can look at to set aside polling. Okay, set it aside. Polling in many states were, was unreliable in 2016. Nationally, it was pretty accurate, but in many states, it was unreliable. Look at performance. Democrats won 41 Republican House districts in this last election. 41. They only needed 23. And they didn't just win in you know Santa Monica and the Bronx. They won in Oklahoma. They won in outside of Richmond. They won in the suburbs of Atlanta. Newt Gingrich's old district is now represented by an African-American woman. Um, they won in Utah. They won in Kansas. So there's something going on out there. That said, there are externalities, literally external to the election. If we have a fair and honest election, I like Biden's chances. I think Biden has a very good chance. I think he's even likely to win. But I'm terribly worried we won't have a fair and honest election. Mr. Trump is trying to gum up the works in the, in the postal system. Uh, he is allowing Russia again, to invade and to manipulate uh, public opinion, maybe even penetrate our voting systems. We don't know. I don't know, at least. Um, there's a great many externalities that I can't control for or anticipate. But there's going to be an October surprise, Renato. Save this tape. Uh, uh, you and Patty will be uh, glad you did. <laughs> the October surprise is going to be uh, uh, false evidence, manufactured evidence about Biden or maybe his son or who knows who. But the, 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 I believe the Russians are going to manufacture evidence, and I say this in the book, maybe even deep fake videos, which didn't exist in 2016, where you can manipulate videos. It looks very, very real. And they're going to drop this fraudulent evidence to try to save their boy. You know, they, they don't want, they can't afford to lose Trump. Can you imagine if we had an actual American president and Russia was putting bounties on the heads of American troops? Uh, in, in, in the desert in Syria now, they're, they're ramming our vehicles and injuring our troops. I mean, what do you think Ronald Reagan would do if Russia was putting a bounty on our guys and gals' heads? Um, so, so Putin has to save Trump, and he'll do everything he can. I, I just don't know if, if we're going to be resilient and strong enough to, to resist it. Wow. Well, you know, we've talked a lot about your book throughout the course of this uh, uh, of this podcast. It's called You're Fired, The Perfect Guide to Beating Donald Trump. What do you talk about in the book? Why do people who are these high information uh, voters who are our listeners, why should they read your book? Wow. Well, first, because it's, I hope, a pretty useful uh, strategy guide. 
to how to beat this guy. And it's not just like for the, the gentleman like Dylan, the woman running Joe's campaign or, or the others. It's for all of us who are in this. This is up to us. Uh, I love that Barack Obama used to say, we are the change that we've been waiting for, right? It's all us. And so this actually can arm you to talk to, you know, your papa or your uncle Frank or whoever, um, mm. in a sensible, respectful way that might help win him over, or at least open his mind a bit, by the way, keeping your own mind open, because sometimes our conservative friends are right and I'm wrong. Um, I, that's the first and most important. Um, second, it's a very useful compendium. Uh, I, I had forgotten a great deal of this. Um, the, the, the list of Trump outrages is just so long and so shocking that it just washes over, it seems, from day to day. And so I think it's helpful, at least I do, on issues from national security to climate change to the courts to health care to the economy to gather together that record. And it's all facts. Yeah, my opinion is woven through it. But and I, I have I'm proud to say over 750 citations. You're a real lawyer, Renato. I was educated as one. I never practiced, but I believe in cites. And so I even had my my 19 year old son had to work his tail off on making sure all the cites were accurate and footnoted properly. They're endnotes actually. But it, this is a very factual book. If you want to know how many times Trump called climate change a hoax, you can look it up and you can find not only where I have it, but then you look in the endnotes and you can look it up for yourself to see if i got it right wow well i i i hope he uh at least got uh he got uh, some some payment or some credit uh for his work <laughs> in the book he did he did well he's 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 a I, I love all my kids but he's a young political science major so he loves his stuff anyway wow well he's lucky i will tell you i uh I, uh, you know, was for many years a political junkie who uh, was very interested in watch your analysis. It's been a real treat to have you on the podcast. I, I wanted to thank you for, for joining us. And uh, I, uh, I hope you're right about Biden's chances in November. Me too. Patty, thank you. <laughs> Renato, thank you. It is. It's all up to us. If I can make one last commercial, it is this. Vote early, uh, in person if you can. Many states allow you to vote in person early. Other states allow you to take your absentee vote and drop it in a drop box so you don't have to overburden your letter carrier and the postal system, which Trump is trying to gum up. Many states allow you to vote and then go to, you know, the 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 police station, the firehouse, the government center and drop off your ballot so you don't have to worry about the postal system. Others can use the mail. They get it in early. It'll get there on time. Uh, and if if your listeners are young and healthy and willing they should think about volunteering to be a poll worker. That that means you have to set your partisan hat aside for a few hours and actually serve your community, checking people in at the polling place so the line is not so long. The vast majority, well over 50% of our poll workers are over 60 years old. In fact, most many are over 75. So they're especially vulnerable to coronavirus. So if if folks can do it safely and they're younger and they're healthier, mask up, gown up, you know, and if they're willing, Spend a couple hours checking in voters on election day as a patriot, not a partisan, uh, to make the line go shorter so that nobody gets sick. Um, if I that is really yeah, that's great advice. Thank you. And, I, and if I just may say, uh, your voice is soothing for some reason today. So thank you so much. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear that. I may just compared to uh, the speeches that we saw at the Republican convention that yeah. it may seem <laughs> slightly less hysterical. <laughs> Well, thanks again, Paul. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast. 
Go to your app and review the podcast and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. We'll be right back. 